1: Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy. And a little bit later, we will be joined by Arkansas coach Dave Van Horn for this week's Clubhouse conversation. Uh, Of course, the Razorbacks had another excellent season this year, making it to Omaha uh, yet again. And so we're going to uh, get into a little bit about 2022 uh, with and 2023 looking ahead already, uh, with coach Van Horn and all things hogs here on the baseball America college podcast. Um, we are also going to cover some of the, uh, updates that Joe made as he, uh, updated the top impact transfers, uh, that, that changed schools this off season, uh, that list expanded from 50 to hundred, uh, this week. So we're going to, uh, Going to get into some of that here on, on the Baseball America College podcast. It's August, Joe. There's not a whole lot going on. Some schools are getting started this week or next week, but we're uh, we're, we're rolling right on through the, uh, the dog days of summer.
2: Indeed, we are. It is. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's about move-in time, which takes a lot of forms. Uh, you know, I know on the interwebs, there is this, uh, all the discussion, I don't know if you've run into about uh, Bama Rush Week. You know, it's become like a phenomenon, people posting social media clips of the sorority rush at, at, at Bama. Uh, so that that is a reminder that that school is, is upon us. And, and on a personal note, I uh, was coming heading to or from, I forget, downtown Durham. I guess it was to downtown Durham over the weekend and got caught in a pretty significant traffic jam as move in was happening at NC Central, uh, which is just outside downtown Durham. Um, rest in peace to the NC central baseball program, but I did get caught up in that traffic. And so it was a, a reminder just hitting me right in the face that, Oh yeah, that is, that is what's happening this week. And I will, uh, in, in an unscripted moment, I will ask you for your memories of your freshman year dorm move in.
1: Well, I, uh, b- before we touch on that, I was going to say, I talked to two different coaches within the last week who were moving their kids, uh, into college. Mm. So, uh, that, it's coming for everyone whether you're uh whether you're you're, you're coaching or or going to to, to play or whatever every, everyone seems to be dealing with the moving uh my freshman movement that's actually interesting you ask about that now as ball state just finished tearing down my freshman dorm which was like the big freshman dorm that every campus it feels like like of a medium to big size state university had that they built in the 50s or 60s uh housed the entire freshman class basically well Ball State just finished tearing that down uh within the last month so uh no no more La Follette. I uh I moved in uh it was pretty pretty straightforward move in as, as I recall I, I don't remember it being too hot or anything but uh moved in met my roommate and uh you know off we went freshman year
2: fair enough I uh Mine was I moved in basically by myself. Uh, my mom was a a public school high school teacher, and my dad lived across the country. And so I was like, well, yeah, me and my me and my high school buddy, my best friend in high school, we both went to Sam Houston, and we we just drove up that day and moved ourselves in. We were staying in different dorms for the moment. Um, I lived in uh, Sam Houston Village to start, which at the time. Was this like brand? I think it had been open a year. Like I think one class of freshmen had lived in it before I did, and it was the first big apartment-style dorm at Sam Houston, where I, you know, me and my my um, roommate had our own separate bedrooms. We shared a bathroom, but it had a living space, and and but we had our own separate bedrooms. And um, I lived in that dorm for the first semester, and my, my move-in memories are pretty are pretty like small too like i remember at one point my 1997 toyota corolla struggling in the the, the hills of huntsville texas there was one driveway that uh, i that you have to pull into that was at a really sharp incline and i didn't quite get enough momentum going up and my car bottomed out on it and then i had to press the accelerator to get up this hill and and then almost got into an accident and that that might actually be my most my most memorable moment cuz i you know was just nervous that i was going to get in a car accident my first day on campus but I, uh, my, so my freshman year roommate was in a, uh, was, was in a fraternity, which is no judgment there, but he, um, but he, our dorm kind of became the place where a lot of his buddies from his fraternity would hang out and they were actually pretty, you know, they would just come and hang out and, you know, I, sometimes I would hang out with them, but oftentimes I was also working a part-time job. And so I was coming in late and, and just trying to go to bed because I had class in the morning and I just worked a shift or whatever. Um, so like, it wasn't my ideal situation, but like, you know, it's just, you know, we got along, but then I got a call, I got a call from the Dean's office over Thanksgiving break. Uh, they had found alcohol in our fridge and I knew nothing of it. Honest to goodness, knew nothing of it. Um, and so I guess my roommate had taken it upon himself to just have a real fun party in our dorm room over Thanksgiving break and had, had gotten caught because why would you not um, in that situation? The RA lived just down the hall. Uh, thankfully, he did the thing where he told the the dean's office, "Hey, you know." And at this point, he had not had the conversation with the dean, but he told the dean, "Yeah, that my roommate had nothing to do with that." So, you know, that wasn't, uh, you know, let him off the hook. So he he took the fall there, which you know was the right thing to do because that was you know his deal. But uh, at the semester break, I moved out of that dorm uh, mostly just because I wanted to live with said best friend from high school. So I moved into the much less palatial Mitchell House, which had all of it looked like a hostel. It felt like a hostel, um, and it had maybe 20 rooms in it, maybe 25, um, and also rest in peace Mitchell House. It was uh, torn down uh, before I even graduated. It had been torn down to make room for a new dining hall. So um, Mitchell House was a very different living experience, uh, right down to you know the concrete floors and the furniture all being built into the walls and, and all of that stuff. So... Uh, move-in day is kind of I'm with you, like pretty pretty mundane. but my my whole dorm situation as a freshman took a lot of different <laughs> different twists and turns. so that's that's the thing out there is make make sure uh, <laughs> incoming freshmen who are listening to this, which I'm sure they're just millions. Um, you know, value, that demographic that's right. Value your comfortability with your roommate over like how nice or how, you know, fun your your dorm is because ultimately, if you don't jive with your roommate, and again, we got along, but we just weren't we didn't click, you know. And so, you know, if, if you if you don't jive with your roommate, it's gonna make it's gonna make things a little bit extra difficult. And if you you can deal with a lot, including a dorm room that again felt like a hostel and kind of was treated as such, and the beds were hospital beds and what have you. Um, you can deal with a lot of that kind of stuff if you're if you and your roommate kind of get along and you get along with the people in the house and, and all that stuff. So That's my that's my life lesson there is value the the relationship piece over the actual facilities of the dorm.
1: Yeah, so I would say that 100 percent. It's probably a little late for the freshmen that are moving in now. Yeah. yeah, Uh, But if you're a high school senior, thinking about this for next year, that's That's right. uh, That's our that's our advice. That's right. I feel like if I was like really on top of my game, I could transition from that definitely into transfer situations because like that does feel like a little bit of the, you know, like find where you're comfortable a bit, but like I don't I don't have it in in me uh as we record this morning uh to make that deft transition. Uh it's it's August, it's the off season for us all. Uh <laughs> so joe we uh you not we you updated and expanded the list most importantly you expanded the list from 50 to 100 and any players that were on the list that ended up getting drafted or signed as free agents have been removed from the list so this is a lot of new players on the list uh on on this transfer list Uh, and, and it's intended to be top impactful transfers any player on here uh, has committed to a new school at this point, but at this point, very few impact players have not committed. Um, that, was, that was maybe more of an important disclaimer when we did the talked about the 50, less so than on, on this 100. Uh, Tommy White remains number one. Uh, we did have a discussion about whether he or Paul Skeens should be number one on this list. Both are headed to LSU. Uh, so good news for the tigers either way, but we we left it with Tommy White. Uh, also new into the top 10 is Jeron Watts- Brown, who is moving from Long Beach State to Oklahoma State. He committed sometime in July. Uh, and so he is a, a new addition to uh, to the top of the list here. Uh, but any, any other thoughts you had about the the top of this uh, this top 100 impact transfer list?
2: Yeah, I mean the debate for number one is interesting. Uh, you know, you on on my behalf kind of canvassed some opinions out there in the industry uh, d- to kind of see what the the feedback was, and it was it was fairly mixed. But we kept it with White just because we didn't get a lot of people pounding the table for Paul Skeens that that we definitely had to have him number one. It was split to the point where it was like, okay, let's let's go with kind of the gut reaction here, which for me was was Tommy White number one. And um, you well, know, and
1: also some of the the questions that you had or the reasons why you had white number one, that he hit 29 home runs, um, Seven. 27 home runs as uh as a freshman at North Carolina state in ACC school, like moving into, you know, the sec, like, yeah, that's probably a step up. Um, but it's not the same kind of step as, you know, Paul Skeens is a two-time all American. Uh, I'm not here to question, like he played for the, the collegiate national team twice but we are talking about a player coming down from altitude and the rise in competition from the mountain west to the sec is far greater than what tommy white will experience
2: no doubt and there's also you know the stuff we talked about when he committed because we, we we separated that out as a new story to talk about on the podcast some of the stuff that's going to play into that uh, into his role at lsu could could also be part of this right where he could be just as good a player and his numbers on one side or the other could be just as good or better than what he did at air force hypothetically but he's not as impactful as he was at air force because there there is a scenario where you know they uh, his value as a member of the rotation for example is so great that he doesn't end up hitting as much right and so he ends up just mostly pitching and kind of doing some hitting but he's more he's less of a two-way player or the opposite could be true right where hey we we really like his catching and so we also like that we have a you know a power hitter behind the plate and so maybe his role in, in, on the pitching staff is diminished or maybe he goes back to being a reliever so there there are also i think just the logistics of what he's trying to do at a place like LSU are such that again he could be just as good but have a diminished role by no fault of his own, just the logistics of, hey, he's a catcher who's also trying to be a starting pitcher, at least on, on paper. So at Air Force, that's one thing. At LSU, it's, it's a whole different deal. So that that's also baked into it, just the idea that he might not be the impact two-way guy he's been his first two years. So that, I mean, that, l- Let's that, face
1: it, comparing two-way players to one-way players is very challenging to do. It's yeah. something that we've been trying to do in college baseball for quite a long time, And but you're now seeing the struggles that folks in the big leagues are having trying to determine, okay, so what, how do we value what Shohei Otani does versus what, uh, you know, Aaron judge is doing, say in the MVP race or, or whatever, like these are very difficult players to compare because they're doing something that is so unique uh, when you compare them to almost any other player, uh, you know, on the board, unless they also happen to be a two-way player.
2: The, the some of the other big picture things are that the, proven starting pr- proven pitching in general but proven starting pitching is expensive uh metaphorically speaking but maybe also literally um when you look at this this the top of this list because you do have you know Hurston Waldrop at at 3 and uh, Thatcher Hurd who is proven but also coming off of a back injury and and back injury is kind of one of those injuries that makes people go like uh you know because it's just it's a little less certain than some of the other pitching injuries we tend to see but Watts Brown, Cade Morris, Ross Dunn, Landon Gartman from Memphis going to Mississippi State. Like those are all guys at the top of this list. And I don't want to say good bats are a dime a dozen. That's not really true. But as you start to work your way down this list and get closer to 50 and then closer to 75 and 100, you do start to see a change in the the type of player we're talking about. So that the top of the list is very heavy on proven starting pitching. And yes, there are some dynamic pitching players, but that's where the high-end talent really is, it feels like. Whereas you get down to the bottom of this list and it is very heavy on a a couple of archetypes of players. One is mid-major power hitters moving up to power conferences. It feels like maybe the lesson of seeing Sonny D, and I don't think any of these hitters are quite Sonny D just because we saw at Samford that he was already that kind of hitter. Um, But I think seeing the success of that uh, model and others, there were others out there, but Seeing the success of that model, I think, has motivated uh, some teams to kind of look at, OK, maybe that jump is not as big as we thought it was if we like the raw skills. So kind of the second half of this list is very heavy on that. There's also very heavy on, you know, it's it's almost a cliche when people talk about it, but everyone has guys who throw 95 these days at the college level. And I think this, <laughs> this these transfer rankings are proof of that. There are so many hard throwing relievers with good numbers and high strikeout rates and, and all of it. Who we're transferring that some of those guys got left off frankly like there are guys on the cutting room floor here i could and teddy and i briefly talked about and it was more of my idea and teddy being like well here's yes but here's why we should really consider this i briefly debated going to 200 players um because there are just a lot of guys in the cutting room floor here who i think are going to be you know impact transfers in one way or the other but uh, moral of the story Um, you definitely see the type of player transitioning on this list as we get further down to be a little bit over indexed for, um, mid-major power hitters, power arms that you, people you've never heard of who throw hard and have really good numbers. And the third, I would say is versatile infielders. And that's really at the bottom, bottom of this list. You see guys like Grant Smith at incarnate, Word. he's not so much versatile as much as he's just a really steady shortstop, but Hunter Haas, you know, going from Arizona state to to Texas A and M jake ducart going from oregon state to, to texas tech david bryant going from radford to virginia tech um those are just a few examples of, of guys who are either just shortstop shortstops like for sure shortstops or guys who can play every position on the infield and so that's another archetype i think towards the back of this that you're seeing a lot of in the transfer portal and furthermore being valued at a level higher than you might anticipate because of a lot of those guys you look at the numbers And you go, "Ah, you know, okay, like it's a nice player, but they're bringing something else to the table that's a little bit harder to perceive, which is either a real steady hand defensively or this guy is a Swiss army knife of a defender that we can use anywhere on the field.
1: The idea that like you're finding bringing in a guy who can play shortstop, whether the intention is to play him at shortstop only or to if he doesn't win the shortstop job, he's a guy that you feel comfortable moving around the infield um that's something that coaches have always been looking looking for like you there are just so few guys like it's so important to have a lockdown shortstop you know that that is and it's true behind the plate as well that for many years i you know talked to coaches in the the fall about their recruiting class. And I say like, are you done? Or are you still looking? Or I'm just talking to somebody in the spring, like, Oh, have you been out like looking at guys for for next year or whatever? And they usually say like, Oh, well, I'm looking for a junior college catcher or like, Oh, we, we take a junior college shortstop. And like the, those, those guys are, have always been very highly prioritized. So it is of no surprise now that you have access to a different sort of player that those players are are in demand as as for your transfers um the the value that they bring as a just somebody that you know at shortstop that is going to make all of the routine plays and maybe some of the spectacular ones but at least catch and throw uh at shortstop uh, like that that has value at every single level of baseball and so yeah i'm not surprised that that group is uh is finding finding a a home on the the top one hundred here because they those are guys you can plug into the lineup and and feel great about doing so. Um, any other surprises for you around here? I like we we saw some interesting. We've seen over the last couple of years some interesting guys moving up from the lower ranks, uh, from Division Two or Division Three, and and making an impact in um, in the the Division One world. I mean, this year you have. Xavier Rivas coming from University of Indianapolis going to Ole Miss. Southern Miss uh, dip back into the Division Three ranks after, I guess, Hunter Riggins came from Division II. But Southern Miss dipping back into the lower divisions for, for a pitcher, I, I found that to be interesting. Um, anything like that stand out for you, Joe?
2: I think it's interesting to see how teams that you might not have, you or I might not have valued as being, Um, the results might not have been very good, but then you see where their players end up and it kind of makes you think like, huh. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't mean that as an indictment of where they were before. Although I I assume in some cases it is that um, where they were before just wasn't maximizing the talent. I think in some cases it can mean, oh, something was actually happening at this previous program. And now it is kind of a bummer. And this is the downside of the transfer portal. When you talk to coaches at the the mid-major smaller program level is that, you know, it is harder to kind of build something year after year because, you know, if your guys pop, they're going to have opportunities. And so, um, you, you can see some of that stuff. One example, uh, that was obvious and it was an early example is Tulane, And I think we kind of knew that there was talent there. It's, it's Tulane, Right. But they also brought in a good class. The, these last couple of years, their classes have been pretty good and there's some big name guys on there and, and they got some of those guys back to campus, but you look at, you know, they've got guys at, at Ole Miss and, and, Wake Forest and um, just kind of all over the place in terms of uh, transferring out. One of the places you might not think of was Northwestern. And I think they might have – I'm going to control F this real quick, so bear with me, dear listener. Um, I
1: think it's at least three.
2: Yeah, it might be four. Like So Northwestern has uh, number 24 on this list, Ethan O'Donnell, an outfielder transferring to Virginia. Uh, number 58, Anthony Calarco, a first baseman transferring to Ole Miss. Sean Sullivan, a left-hander transferring to Wake Forest, and Patrick Herrera, a second baseman transferring to Kentucky. So, and Herrera was a late addition; he was one of the kind of the last guys that made it on to the the one hundred. So, but they have four. Northwestern has four outgoing players um, on this list, and there are two going to the ACC, and both teams we expect to be very good in the ACC and two players going to the SEC. So it is kind of interesting to see situations like that where players on teams that you might not have valued that highly, um, you know, Northwestern was a team that didn't make the big 10 tournament last year. I mean, they were close. I think they lost out on maybe on a tiebreaker or they were ninth or whatever, um, didn't make the big 10 tournament and now has four pretty prominent players going to, to big time programs. And so it shows that there was probably something brewing there. Cause a lot of these are also younger players. Like the, these are, you know, with the exception, I think Colarco is an older player, but the rest of them are, are younger players in terms of their their playing years. Um, so something was probably happening there at Northwestern, and, and now it, they they won't be able to see that quite to, to fruition. But it is it is kind of an interesting phenomenon. and you can see throughout the portal is is where the players are coming from. We fo- we fixate on where the players go, and I get that. That's the point, but it is also interesting to see the inverse of where the players are coming from.
1: That is uh, that is definitely an interesting point. Um, a lot of, a lot to dig into there on that top 100 which you can find over at baseballamerica.com and for the arkansas people uh, who are listening to this podcast for our interview coming up here in just a second here with uh with dave van horn uh some more incoming talent uh we, we talk a little bit with dbh about how arkansas attacks the portal uh this is something that arkansas was doing before the one-time transfer exemption was put into place they were uh, already making good Use of grad transfers, um, being very selective with those guys and, and to, to some good results, and, and that has now been expanded with the uh, with the one time transfer exception. So, uh, Arkansas fans, I'm, I'm sure, will have interest in that as as well. So, um, with that, let's uh, let's get to our interview here with Coach Dave Van Horn. Uh, a lot to talk about, Arkansas, a very interesting team going into 2023 and of course coming off of a college world series appearance. So a lot to dive into with him on the latest edition of our clubhouse conversation. And we'll get to that here in a second, but first check this out.
3: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. If you need to hire, you need indeed.
1: today on the baseball america college podcast we are excited to be joined by arkansas coach dave van horn arkansas of course coming off of another (laughs) impressive season that ended with a trip to omaha coach uh happy to have you on and and ready to talk a little bit about 2022 and a little bit looking ahead already to 2023
4: sounds great appreciate you guys
1: all right so arkansas uh comes together with a uh, another strong season Gets to Omaha again. Um, what are just now that we've had a couple months removed from the season? You look back at the the year. What are your reflections on the 2022 campaign for the Hogs?
4: Just really, really enjoyed the team. Enjoyed being around the guys. They were uh, they were just a fun group to be around, and uh, they really liked to play. Uh, you know, we had some ups and downs, obviously, and. Man, at this level and in the SEC and the Western Division, you're gonna you're gonna go through that. You're gonna have your good weekends and some bad weekends, and you just uh, you try to stay strong. And they did. You know, uh, I look back at there were there were a lot of times when we felt like offensively we were about ready to break out of it, and then we went back into a little bit of a slump. And but when you take a step back, it might have been because we were facing some really good pitching, some really good teams, and uh, you know, on the on the pitching side of it, I thought we had some guys really really come on late. Will McIntyre jumps out at me uh, to really help our team down the stretch, and uh, it was definitely a team effort to get to 46 wins or whatever we were at. Uh, it was it seemed like it was a new couple of guys every week. So it was uh what a great year it was.
2: At your, your pre CWS press conference, uh, you always make a point to talk about just how difficult it is to just get to Omaha. And I've always kind of appreciated that in, in hearing you say that because it, I think it's, it can, we see some of the same teams often in Omaha. And I think it can, for some people, seem like it's old hat. But I'm curious for those. Who haven't heard you talk a little bit about that if you could give voice to that and just what makes that journey so hard that just getting to omaha is kind of a celebration of the of the season you had and, and yes you want to win a national title but to, to be able to kind of just celebrate and appreciate just getting to that stage
4: i think anybody that's coached at the division one level as long as i have and has had the opportunity to be in omaha uh, as a spectator and as a head coach of one of the teams participating I, I feel like I've, I've gained a lot of experience on how it feels um you know I've been there many a time where frustrated when we leave and didn't feel like we played that well and you, you leave there and you're just really really disappointed and you're thinking man I I don't want to come back here unless I I win this thing and then then that goes away a little bit then you really start thinking about it the experience that all the players have by getting there how hard it is to get there it's it's you got to go through your league you got to stay healthy you got to fight through regionals and super regionals and you know baseball is one of those games it's there's a lot of ups and downs and it's kind of who's hot at the time and uh, i've learned over the last few times up there uh being within one out of winning a national championship and the next year going back again and losing two one run games and leaving quick and missing out with a team in 21 that won about everything that was put in front of us and got beat a one run game in the last game of the season by North Carolina state to not go to Omaha. And you just start, you really, you realize it's, it's difficult and it's a celebration when you get, get there and you got to enjoy it. And I've started enjoying it a lot more. I, I feel like that I've, I've really just, tried to tell the players to enjoy it as much as you can, but stay focused and stay serious. And I think we've done a good job with it, but it it's very, very difficult to get there because of all the talent around the country. Really, when you get get to the final 64 and then the final 16 and it's uh, getting there is is a, is a major accomplishment. And if, if you win it, man, it's 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 got to be great. Um, but if you don't you shouldn't walk out of there disappointed with your head held down you had a great season you had a great run to get there
1: you you mentioned having to fight through regionals and this year you definitely had to do that in Stillwater. uh what from the, from the outside that that looked like an absolutely crazy regional from start to finish what was it like being on the inside of those games and, and trying to figure out how you're going to get 27 outs and and uh just face up with uh, all the good pitching and, and hitting that you saw there
4: Yeah, it was an unusual weekend as far as the weather. We had a light breeze blowing out pretty much from right field corner to left center. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like it was blowing 15, 20 miles an hour, anywhere from probably five to 12 miles an hour. And the ball was absolutely jumping. I hadn't seen the ball fly like that. I don't know if ever, uh, unless the wind was just howling out. And uh, some really good teams and uh, a lot of home runs were hit and like you said it it started early we played grand canyon and we hit a couple home runs to give us a lead and they hit a couple home runs to get close and we hit a few more to to finish them off and then you know oklahoma state you know that that was an amazing we basically end up playing them a three-game series after that we were down big came back and won and they came back and beat us in the second game. And then the, the third game was classic And my, my eyes being in the dugout, you know, how how'd I feel being in the dugout? You're right. It was like, do we have enough to slow them down? They were definitely one of the top two or three teams we played all year. Um, you know, it's too bad. To, you know, you, sometimes you run into that and, you know, if they'd have been in another regional or we'd have been in another regional, we might've faced each other in Omaha, but you just have to play who's in front of you. And that's what we talked to our guys about. But that, that was, one of the toughest regional I've ever been involved in. I've been involved, maybe twenty of them. I'm not sure, but uh, it was it was definitely a fight. And and you just you never felt like you had enough runs, and you know you wish you could match up against every every hitter left left right right because you felt like you might have had a little better chance.
2: One thing I found interesting about your roster last year, again, is that you you know the transfers in a lot of ways were were really playing big roles. Lansillian and Turner, chief among them, of course. And yours is a, is a program that's not shy about filling in the roster with transfers, even before it was as common as it as it is today. But you're also not a program that takes. A ton of them. It seems like you guys are, are pretty good about finding program fits or finding guys that fit a specific need. Just generally, how do you and your staff kind of go about the, fitting the player need? Yes, but also just fitting the program need. Given that you're going to be parachuting a guy in for maybe one or two years, and, and he's got to be able to fit in right away in order to make it work.
4: You know, and we we I mean, we're out. We're looking all the time, like everybody else. I mean, you're going to compete in the Southeastern Conference. You have to stay experienced so to speak um you know there's going to be some freshmen that are really going to contribute maybe but second half of the season um they might end up being your guy on the mound or one of your best hitters but it's tough to stay at the top of the league with young teams in the sec and probably any league but you know we feel like that we don't want to bring in too many guys we got to bring in the right guys and i'm sure everybody says that we were very fortunate last year we brought in the right guys with You know, Michael Turner coming in after, you know, after we lost Casey Opitz, and we just felt like we needed an older guy. Um, He didn't catch all the time at uh, Kent State, but we felt like uh, after watching video, we loved the way he caught. We loved his hands and his release, and he'd always hit. And he didn't get to play. He didn't catch a lot. He had to play third base, and it ended up being a great fit for us, and he had a tremendous season. and, And then Chris Lanzilli, you know, a guy that had some experience, had a super freshman year at Wake Forest and a couple OK years. Uh, he, he bounced back and had I just think he needed to change the scenery and he had a really good, really good season for us. I think uh, he, we challenged him and, you know, he handled it and he 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 finished the season, you know, really swinging it well for us. And he brought a little bit of leadership and personality and uh you know, we we've just we've been fortunate there. Uh, we like to build within. We like to build our team around the young guys in the future. But you know, with with the way the landscape is now in Division One baseball, man, you got to get some guys. But you got to get the right guys. I, I think you could backfire on you if if you have too many guys that uh, want to be the guy or just really. Cons- concerned about how much money they're going to make in the draft. If you have too many of those guys in your locker room, it's going to be hard to win.
1: For the last couple of years, you've been able to roll out a middle infield of Robert Moore and Jalen Battles. And, I mean, that must have been very uh, – you must have felt great being able to write those two guys into the lineup card day after day. But what was it like coaching them and and watching them play up the middle and uh, just what that did for your defense over the last two seasons?
4: man, it was fun. I'll tell you, it's, uh, you know, you don't run across the middle infield like that at this level. Very often, you know, you had Robert that never missed a ball. Honestly, his, uh, I think got on the score sheet or our stat sheet. It said he had two errors on the year and one of them for sure. Wasn't an error. It was a double play ball. He turned, it was a little bit high and the first baseman, tried to stay on the bag. All they had to do is reach up and catch it a little bit and it went off tip his glove and, it was on a double play ball, and the ball went and got away. Then the batter runner ended up second base, and the other one was a backhand up the middle. I think was in the super regional. I thought it was an error all the way. Um, ball kicked up on him, and they scored it an error. But sometimes that happens when you're a really good player. And Jalen, Jalen's last year here was incredible. This past season, he got better and better and better. And we wanted the ball hit to Jalen. Um, I mean, arm was accurate, glove was amazing, his reads. His, he knew when to charge, take a step back, just, just did a great job. And those guys turned double play were about as good as I've ever seen at this level. And, you know, people will ask me, how are you going to replace those guys? I said, you don't You just hope guys develop and get continue to get better. But, uh, what a, what a fun group, fun to, to watch them in practice. Cause they brought it in infield practice and we really the second half of the season, it wasn't a lot of drill work. It was more about just short double play balls and just really turning the double play. And we worked a lot on it. And, man, it paid off in the games.
2: How um how fun was it to see Connor Nolan have the, the bounce-back season he has? You talk about a guy that, you know, has, has been through ups and downs and seen it all in an Arkansas uniform. To have him be the type of workhorse that he was that last season just had to be really gratifying for, for your staff and the team.
4: You know, Connor made a – it was great. I mean, just to answer your question – at first connor was just um, he's always been a great leader uh but he decided to really get in the best shape of his life and that's what he did and and it made it just made him better and uh you know having him back and this past spring was it was huge for our staff because we had some young guys that we were going to need to to fill in some open spots and you know he, he just ate up innings on friday game one of the sec series Win or lose. The guy was giving us six, seven innings and really gave us an opportunity to to win the next two games if possible. And you know, where well, we didn't have to use a lot of the bullpen and you know, to see him pitch like he did down the stretch, I mean in the regional, the super regional, and then in Omaha, really twice in Omaha. Even the game we lost old miss. He only gave up a couple of runs, only gave up a few hits, ground ball hits and you know, one or two hard hit balls, but what a, what a great effort what a great leader and happy for him and uh you know the fans will always love Connor Nolan in this state
1: the way the draft works I mean you never know quite how it's going to work out and this year it ends up with Brady Slavens and Zach Morris both coming back uh for for next season what does that mean and, and what are you looking for those guys in terms of, of growth towards next year
4: well, Slavin's, you know, we need to get him healthy. You know, a lot of people didn't realize this. He had some elbow problems last year. And he started out all fall playing outfield for us, elbows bothering him. And had a little issue with, you know, with the, with the nerve in there and some things. And really, he had a chance to fix it in January when they finally diagnosed it correctly, I would say. Um, but he didn't want to because he was going to miss a lot of the season. So we, we DH'd him most of, most of the season. I mean, he had a good season have a great season for him i think he was he he. his better days are in front of him and i hope it's obviously this spring i, I feel like uh now that he's got that elbow fixed um, he'll miss most of fall baseball but he'll be ready to play for us and we're gonna we're gonna play him exclusively at first base and just let him let him get better there he was our first baseman in, in 21 and we had a great season and we'll see how it works for him again and then zach morris i mean Wow, he really came on the second half of the season, and I would say the second half of the season, he only had one bad outing, and that was in Omaha, then he had a great outing. So uh, we expect him to to continue to take a step forward and challenge to be a, a weekend starter if that's, what he, if that's what he wants to do, and uh, there's still a lot of uh, questions to be answered this fall here.
2: Get had some young arms that really stepped up early and, and were electric for a lot of the season. Hagen Smith, Brady Tiger, those guys come to mind at least most prominently. But how did you feel that group handled the the workloads, um, especially those two handled the work, heavy workloads as the season went on? And, and what are you looking for from, from those two specifically as they look to take the next step?
4: I think both of those freshmen did a great job early. And then I, I feel like a little bit of fatigue set in and it happens all the time with freshman pitchers and you know, we, we pulled Hagan out of the starting rotation and put him in the bullpen for a couple of weeks, rested him, uh, and then he finished strong. And then, uh, you know, Tiger was, a was a reliever all, all season for us. And, uh, man, he, he, he helped us win a lot of games, middle of the season, struggled a little bit at the end, but I feel like he, he kind of ran out of gas and, uh, I believe both of those guys are going to have tremendous sophomore years they gain a lot of experience they both have an opportunity to start, but I sure like both of them at the back of the bullpen as well, Uh, you know that'll still to be determined this fall and then early spring and. uh, I I just. uh, I'm just excited they're they're young and we know we're going to have them a couple more years.
1: Four teams from the SEC West. Uh, show up in Omaha this last year I mean obviously that speaks to the depth of the division that you compete in but what's that grind like uh in and week out having to to go through the west
4: well the west is it's been really good over the last five years I would say or maybe a couple more than that I mean the east has been extremely good as well they won some national championships and you know, you can't really compare the East to the West. I mean, it's year to year and usually boils down to who's got the pitching. And uh, You know, the last two years the national champions come out of the West. You know, I had I had people throughout the season, towards the end of the season, you know, trying to, commenting that the West was down. And I kept saying, now the West isn't down. The, the West is just good and it's even. Teams are, there's not much difference in talent and the way they're playing and coaches did a great job with the teams. And, uh, but it's a grind. I mean, you, you hear it all the time. Uh, The whole season's a grind, but then just when you're playing division schools, you know, we're playing LSU and Ole Miss, Mississippi state, Auburn, Alabama. I mean, A&M it's, it's tough and you're playing at places that are full of, full of fans. You know, the Western division, if you look at the national, uh, I guess the standings uh, ranked in order on who had the most fans that year. It's usually Ole Miss, Arkansas, LSU. And this year, we, I think for the first time, we ended up first. We finished second and third. And just amazing the support uh, of the teams in our division. And stadiums are incredible. But uh, the competition on the field is even better.
2: So we will start to wrap up here and let you go. Before we do, we we like to have a little fun with our guests here. And and we ask them uh, to describe for us their favorite sandwich. And some coaches will describe a sandwich they make at home. Um, some you know something they just is a go to, or maybe in the coach's office on on the fly. Some describe a sandwich they get from a local place out where they are. Some, including a one of your SEC rivals, Mike Bianco, described a sandwich his mom made for him when he was a kid that he really looks back on uh, with nostalgia. So you can take it any direction you would like, coach. But this is the question the entire state of Arkansas is is waiting to hear the answer to with bated breath. Uh, Dave Van Horn, describe for us your favorite sandwich.
4: Well, you know I'm going to give you one and then i'll give you my favorite i mean nothing beats a good cheeseburger obviously but if you're talking just you know just kind of a sandwich that's made here there uh and they're hard to find is an egg salad sandwich made correctly and my wife makes the best ever and i've been to some good restaurants that have had them or sandwich places but i'm going to go with an egg salad sandwich and uh I use a lot of uh, Miracle Whip on mine too. so. Mm,
2: mm-hmm. I'm big Miracle Whip. That's kind of a controversial take. Some people don't like Miracle Whip, but I'm, I'm big on it. I'm, I'm with you on that, Coach. <laughs> what Just quickly, one more. What do you, uh, if you're making a burger, like let's say you have the entire bar of options available to you, what are you putting on the burger? Assuming it's cooked well and the flavors on the burger are good, you're not having to mask the flavor or anything.
4: Well, on one bun, I'm going to put a bunch of Miracle Whip. On the other bun, I'm going to put mustard um mm-hmm. and then i'm gonna go with you know obviously i would rather have like a homegrown like a garden type tomato if at mm-hmm. all lettuce um might do might do a purple onion uh depends on where i'm at or what's going on that's that's probably about as thick as i want to get it because it's, yep. it's a difficult to eat after that
2: yep no that's fair that's fair that those vegetables give it that especially that red onion it gives it that crunch that's what you're you're looking for there
1: well, now we're going to have to go find a properly made egg salad sandwich, which, as you <laughs> said, not the not the easiest thing. So we're all going to come to your house and uh, we're going to get some, get some egg salad sandwiches. <laughs>
4: Beautiful. Come we on.
1: Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time here, Coach. Uh, it's been a lot of fun watching the Razorbacks the last few years, and I'm sure 2023 will be no different. It'll be here before we know it. And uh, very excited to see what they look like out on the diamond uh, this spring.
4: We feel the same way, we got a lot of new faces and uh, we gotta replace pretty much our whole position player team. So this fall will be very important for us and uh, we're looking
1: forward to getting started here in a couple of weeks. Thank you again to Arkansas coach Dave Van Horn for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast and our Clubhouse Conversation Series. Uh, Joe, It was. Uh, it was not the year for Arkansas, that that I think any of us anticipated, just in terms of the ups and downs of it, uh, but they got they got there in the end. They got to Omaha, and um, I mean, just I, I I think that's a testament to the depth and how good Arkansas is. But also, just like he he mentioned there, the the grind of the SEC and specifically the SEC West. That at times it was it was very difficult for them during the regular season, but they were very much prepared by the end of it to, to attack uh, a regional and super regional, even having to go on the road for them uh, and be ready to go. And, and ultimately end end the year back in Omaha.
2: Yeah. I tend to, I tend to not be the one who who buys into a lot of this stuff necessarily. I think there's value in it, but sometimes I roll my eyes at some of this stuff, but I do think this was the 2022 results in getting to Omaha was a culture thing with Arkansas. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why they shouldn't have got that far, right? I mean, they, 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 we got the feeling they were kind of coasting through the first half to two thirds of the year. Right. And then they, they started to hit the skids. They went zero two and Hoover. And you kind of thought, okay, this is, and, you know, and then they, they met some resistance. They they got a tough draw going to Stillwater. It's a hostile environment against a good team. And they certainly got, you know, as we discussed in the interview, they certainly got punched in the mouth a little bit in Stillwater and, and they punched back and, you know, they, they, they looked like, you know, they were hitting their stride in a super regional and then, you know, fell just short and, Omaha of getting the championship series, but that just strikes me as, as a a program that kind of knows what they're doing and knows how to get to Omaha and knows what it takes. And all those cliches that again, sometimes I'm inclined to roll my eyes at, but I, I do think this is a case where there is something to it. They, they just, they just found a way to get there and things didn't go perfect. Right. I mean, we can talk about some of that stuff, but there were a number of guys who, who didn't have the offensive years that, that we thought they would have. And I don't think they're thankful to have had it happen, but I don't, I think if if you had told them or certainly told me that, that Lanzilli and Turner were going to be their two most effective offensive players for a lot of the season, I would have thought that, oh boy, they are in real trouble. Um, but that was the case for stretches. Those two guys really helped carry the load there. Um, and then, you know, on the mound, they had some ups and downs. They got what they got from Nolan, probably didn't get as much as they wanted out of Jackson Wiggins and Hagen Smith and Tigert kind of slowed down a little bit at the end with with Smith eventually moving to the bullpen. Like there were just a lot of, a lot of stuff happened. Right. Um, But they fought through it all and ended up in Omaha. And I just don't, I don't think that is, yes, they are super talented and we're just the better team in a lot of cases, but I think there's more to it than that. Like I just think this is a program that just knows what they're doing for lack of a better way of putting it. I mean, that's, that's a super simplified way to put it, but there are a lot of programs that would deal with that kind of stuff and not end up where they ended up, but Arkansas found a way.
1: Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely an impressive run. Uh, I mean, and, and it started in the off season in terms of the the downs or or the, the challenges, the hurdles they had to overcome when Pin Pollett goes down injured. And I mean, that, that was the guy that was expected and being counted on to be the opening day starter, the Friday night ace. And all of a sudden, they were they were stripped of that, and Nolan stepped up to the plate, and and we talked with DBH about what that meant for the team and and how good that was, uh, you know, for him to have that that season. But I mean, they needed it, and you know, they they, if you look at what Robert Morris' season was, I don't think that was the year that he wanted or the year that was expected of him, and um, you know, Brady Slavens had. You know, as as was discussed there, had had some injury issues and, and challenges throughout the year, and I, I mean the offense just never was quite. It, it wasn't as consistent as what we expected it to be, and you know I think that contributed to some of Arkansas's difficult weekends at times. But also, they showed that they had more than enough to to keep pace with with anyone as as they did in Stillwater. And, uh, and and just rolled through what they needed to in the postseason. And, and I can't – that that really is as impressive a thing as, as they did all, all year is what they were able to accomplish in the postseason going on the road to Stillwater and then to Chapel Hill. And they took care of business so efficiently against UNC. I know we talked about it in the Super Regional Wrap-Up just – that was something that was it was over before it started it felt like that those those two games just went real quick and yes they were tight games but arkansas never really um you know there, there were moments you know they had to come back but it, they were never they were never out of it by any stretch they didn't require any of the crazy comebacks that they did the week before they just went out there and they took care of business and uh after such a dramatic and ultimately disappointing 2021 super regional they they had the absolute opposite of that this year
2: yeah they and they one of the things that stands out to me too is that you mentioned the it made me think about this you mentioned the Paulette injury before the season even started is it's not just that arkansas finds ways to figure it out in the big picture right so they, they go through struggles and they they come together as a team and they, and they get better and they, they get hot and, and all that stuff. It's also that they figure things out on a micro level. Like you and I have had the conversation a lot, frankly, about, you know, Arkansas shrinks down its pitching staff. You know, Dave Van Horn and, and Matt Hobbs, just they shrink it down pretty small by the time you get to the postseason. Right. There's always it, it seems like Arkansas is often in a position where it feels like they trust just a couple of guys and they're just going to go to those couple of guys at the moment of truth more often than not. Um, and yet they do get moments like, you know, you, you can't just do that. And, and we can talk, you know, we've talked a number of times about how it, the super regional in, in 2021, maybe that was to their detriment ultimately, but you know, in this year they just kind of figured it out like in, in the, on the micro level and on the individual game level, like Lord knows they got pushed in that Stillwater regional. They had, you know, you asking the question about, you know, just figuring out how to get 27 outs and they did. And it's just more often than not, they they do. And so whether it's Will McIntyre, you know, um, coming on strong, which which he mentioned at the end, or a, a big start from uh, a big outing from, from Zach Morris or, you know, big outs from, from Zeb Vermilion or other guys at the back of the bullpen, whatever it was, um, they just figured it out. And so while it does, they, they do narrow it down in a lot of cases on the pitching staff. Like they do find ways to push little buttons here or there that, that just kind of seem, to work, even if it's a guy they maybe they maybe didn't anticipate having to, to lean on. And, and that's a that's a testament. You know, whether or not we could have an argument back and forth about whether they should, you know, be a little more liberal with their their pitching usage down the stretch. Like I guess we could have that debate, but you certainly can't argue with the results they get from it, generally speaking.
1: Looking ahead to 23, um, last year they brought back far more of their lineup than their pitching staff. This year flips. Um, especially so with Zach Morris coming back, I mean, you're bringing back Will McIntyre, Zach Morris, Higgins Smith, Brady Tigert, and Jackson Wiggins. And I have no idea how those guys are going to get lined up. They all got used in ways that, uh, you know, you could see them being in the rotation. You could see them closing. Like they could do a number of things with those five guys, but if those are your top five pitchers and they're going to absorb the bulk of the innings that Arkansas has to offer this year. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, they have an exciting recruiting class coming in. They hit the portal for a couple of key bats in um, Tavian Josenberger from Kansas and Jared Wanger from from Creighton. Um, Stovall is back after a pretty good freshman year. I have to believe there's more in the tank for for him. And you get Brady Slavin's back unexpectedly, and, and we'll see what that looks like. But that's another big bat to have back. I mean, it we have them ranked seventh right now. There's a lot to like about this team. Uh, certainly, some big holes to fill, but but I do like the the returning talent, um, and and the way that it's spread out uh, on the pitching staff, especially.
2: Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's kind of the thing that happens, you know, right. You talk to these coaches and then you start to like, look at the. what you do is you just look at the roster a little harder. And because we're at a time when it's, you know, it's all upside, no downside. When you're looking at rosters this time of year, you start to like really talk yourself in. And I'm like, man, you know, I, I actually really like this roster. Like seven might be low, um, you know, <laughs> so, but that's something we will do with almost literally every coach we talk to this, this offseason. So it it ends up balancing out, but. One of the other guys transfer wise, you're you're right to mention Wagner and, and Josenberg are on the mound. They're also getting Cody Frank from Nebraska, who like fits right into what you're talking about on the mound, where it's like, you know, Morris and, and McIntyre. We kind of know what they're gonna, what Hagen Smith is going to be, although he did pitch in the bullpen at the end of the year, but I anticipate he's kind of the guy that leads the rotation. But everybody else could, you know, you 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 could see them in a shutdown reliever role. You could see them stretched out to be in the rotation. Frank is kind of exactly that same type of guy you know, Nebraska didn't necessarily um, want to, use, he wasn't anticipated to be in the rotation last year. And then Nebraska got just racked with injuries in the pitching staff, they they pushed him into the rotation and it actually went really, really well. So, you know, he's a guy who kind of fits exactly into that mold where it's like, you know, he could be a high leverage guy. He, he misses enough bats to be, to be a moment of truth reliever, but he stretched out to be a starter. So he's just just another guy that kind of adds to what is already looking like a pitching staff that's going to have both talent and versatility on its
1: side. If you're looking for downside or questions going into 23, I think my two big ones are what are they doing behind the plate and who is playing shortstop? Um, They have options at both. Nothing seems locked in though, and so I'll just be interested to see how those positions come out and i'm especially interested not so much a a catcher like we've seen them reload a catcher um but Jalen battles was just so good at shortstop for the last few years like who is going to be next and how do they um how do they work with that and maybe that's just paying snowball uh moving over to shortstop he played first base because that was what was available on the infield last year uh but that's a guy that you know, is is going to move off of first base this year, um, and, and you know if that's it, that's fine. But I just battles was so good at shortstop as as we talked about, um, w- with DVH, What does what does the next shortstop look like at Arkansas?
2: Yeah, and it, I mean you you know more about Stovall than I, I mean I saw Stovall play last year, but you know Stovall more as a middle infield prospect because you you wrote about him in the recruiting process. But you know if that's it, if they, if they go there, um, you know Josenberger is mostly a second baseman could also play the outfield, but is from everything I I've, I've talked to people about him is a sh- like a shortstop quality defender. You just have to remember he was playing at Kansas with Maui Ahuna. He was never going to play shortstop. So he played center field. He played second base, super good athlete. Um, so that, I mean, again, to, to David Horn's point, you're not going to replace battles and Robert Moore, but you know, if, Peyton Stovall lives up to his his advanced billing as, as a prospect and, and is able to handle shortstop and Josenberger slots in at second hypothetically. I mean that's or that's even if good you could flip those
1: two for sure. You know?
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah, because Josenberger could do it. Like I said, I, it's just that he's never really had that chance. But that's a pretty. I mean, and that's, that's life for Arkansas and, and all these other programs that operate at such a high level. But um, that's a if, if you're talking about having to retool, like to be able to retool with those kinds of players, that's a, a good spot to be in for sure.
1: We'll learn plenty more about Arkansas as the the fall gets underway there in Fayetteville. Um, but we're uh, I'm glad we were able to get them in early uh, because they are they are such an interesting team going into into this and, and an interesting team to to follow through the fall uh, as we'll be doing here at Baseball America. So uh, throughout the the off season, we're going with our campus or uh, clubhouse, excuse me, conversation series with uh, people from around college baseball coming at you once a week here. Uh, with the Baseball America College podcast. So make sure you are subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. You can find me and Joe on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And all of the writing is over at BaseballAmerica.com, where this week you can find, again, those uh, top 100 transfers. Uh, You can also see the never too early top 25, which we just referenced here. Uh, talking about Arkansas at number seven, all of that at baseballamerica.com. Uh We'll be back next week uh, with another edition of our, of our clubhouse conversation series, uh, which so far has been, been, uh, Dave Van Horn this week, uh, a week ago, it was Virginia tech coach, John chef. So uh, getting some very, very great guests through here already. And we're going to continue that again throughout the, uh, throughout the off season. So if you uh, are interested in hearing from anyone specific, let Joe and me know, but we uh, we're we're excited about uh, the series that we're running here uh, into, into the late summer and, and it'll be running through the fall as well. Alrighty. Thank you all for listening to the Baseball America College podcast. We'll be back here next week. Until then for Joe, I'm Teddy. Thanks for listening.